Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Cindy W., Gordon S., at T-Bird V, and Todd A. Returning to the program today is Mark Henderson. Mark is the president and CEO of Laramide Resources, a United States and Australia-focused uranium development and exploration company with its projects in New Mexico, Utah, United States, and Westmoreland, Queensland, and Murphy Northern Territory projects. Laramide is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol LAM and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol LMRXF. Mr. Henderson, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Nice to be with you again. Absolutely. Good to uh, hear your voice and glad you're hanging in there. How about we kick stuff off here, Mark? We think it's on a lot of folks' minds here, but uh, your thoughts on the Ukraine war and the impacts that this will have on the fuel cycle and the uranium market. Well, obviously, this everyone realized with what's just happened is obviously tragic. I mean, that it came to this, but that Russia has been playing this for a long time and caught the West at a particularly vulnerable moment in terms of security supply of not, and it's not just energy. I think people are realizing as more reporting comes out about, you know, how important they are in the wheat market potentially and the potash market and the palladium market and the nickel market. And you go down the list and it's a pretty, it's a pretty big list. So I think the, the big takeaway obviously is this whole security supply on the economic side, the whole security supply thing is that, you know, folks like us and especially in uranium, because we've been sort of pounding the table that, you know, it doesn't make sense to rely on the kindness of strangers especially when it comes to things like making electricity, was probably not a great idea. And, you know, now you're really seeing it you know, play out in, in real time, unfortunately. Absolutely. I First, it's sad to have the blood in the streets. The more people study this and become informed on the matter, it, both sides are not innocent in what's happened, and the West is certainly not innocent in this. The strategic nature of uh, energy and warfare on pretty obvious uh, set of circumstances there as to why there would be those uh, types of activities battles for infrastructure and control of infrastructure has to do with controlling hearts and minds. One side could potentially use this as a means to appeal to the West and some of their efforts as well. Let's hope cooler heads prevail here. No doubt will it have lasting effects on the fuel cycle points to the underlying fragility of the uranium market and the fuel cycle, specifically in the West. Let's shift over to Kazakhstan for a moment. Uh, this was become background to recent events, but what do you think of Kazakhstan at this point and their reputation for supplying material? Well, that's a great question, uh, Andrew, and, and a, really a good segue from where we are like at this moment in what, March 2022. There was a real warning shot in what happened in January in Kazakhstan and how concerned people got really for a very brief window of time. And then they kind of went back to sleep again on it. And if you look what happened there, it was kind of like the Russians obviously got that thing under control really quickly without effectively a shot being fired. You know, it's in their part of the world and their sphere of influence. And they're, you know, both Russia and China have massive nuclear power demands. And so you, 
you know, you could easily foresee a situation, you know, without Ukraine having happened, where all the future supply out of there effectively goes to those two nation states and their and their friends. And you did see a follow through from that, which you saw what Cameco talked about when they came out with their um, numbers and their quarterly conference call and what have you. They suddenly said, oh, yeah, and by the way, you know, we did 40 million pounds of term demand in January. And, you know, the, the obvious connection, I think, is that the utilities are are panicking quietly to try and beat the rush, right? And so certain amount of utilities got got sorted out and then MacArthur comes back on, which makes sense. And it's going to have to, in other words, you know, it's going to have to come on at full capacity, obviously, in due course. But that was kind of an, a, a thing that everybody should have woken up on that and said, you know, we are quite vulnerable. It's just I'm not sure the, the you know, in terms of energy policy, especially you look around the Western world and I don't find a lot of leadership in most of these nation states really understand it. You know, they don't really understand how critical fossil fuels are going to be to this transition. It's not like you can just wish it away. And a lot of decisions have been made basically without worrying about the consequences. You know, we sort of had a, a lot of this stuff is sort of a fallout of the, and you saw it with COVID with the supply chain and everything else. I mean, sort of this whole, this whole notion of just in time of that for everything, which became kind of a business practice that got preached everywhere. And, you know, let's ship supply chains to Asia. And so, you know, nuclear has a little bit of a, buffer because of how long it takes from the time a pound of uranium comes out of the ground before you need it in a, in a nuclear power plant. But, but you know, there's a lot of vulnerability there. And we seem to have kind of layered on a just-in-time, you know, foreign policy strategy, energy policy strategy on top of the business strategy. And, you know, that's what we're looking at right now. And so it's going to be a while to fix it. I mean, I think the utilities that panicked in January in Kazakhstan, like I said, they sort of got out and beat the rush. And I think it's going to be a long time with the damage that's been done with trust and between nation states and all this stuff in that particular part of the world, like it's hard to see the war will obviously end in, in, in hopefully sooner rather than later, but to put it all back together in some way that the West is interacting with, you know, places like Kazakhstan and, and what have you and Russian oil making its way into the market. I mean, this is going to take a period of time. This isn't going to be over in a, a week or two or a month or two in, in my estimation. There's a lot to unpack, and I won't go into too much of it because we beat it to death over the years. Mm. But certainly, the West has been asleep at the wheel. The United States has been asleep at the wheel. Um, the party's gotten too good. When that happens, you become fat, dumb, and lazy and happy. You can see a lot of the cracks. And I think this has put the West into a position where it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of capital and a lot of headache and looks like some blood to get out of this situation. And it's going to take some time to get into that. Like you said, even today, in the glaring spotlight of what's happening, you still don't have the leadership and the level of wisdom and intelligence at the high levels to be able to execute. It really is sad, actually, Mark. But uh, anyway, nonetheless, let's move on here. Let's get into Laramie. How about just a broad overview of the company for just new audience? Just you know, give us a one-minute shot. Well, when we, when we got involved in this, we were fortunate enough to have an opportunity to get in the uranium business by buying this big former Rio Tinto asset in, uh, in Australia, which was, you know, potentially a top 10 global uranium mine. And at that point in time, there was starting to be a concern about, you know, the uranium market had been in the doldrums forever and ever, and people had sort of gotten reliant on prices being low and you having inventories and all the rest of it. And this was before the rise of Kazakhstan, but the basic premise was really become... Uh, 
supplier of choice to effectively the Western utilities by having projects that were in secure kind of rule of law jurisdiction countries so that you didn't have challenges. And you're seeing, you know, you're seeing those sort of challenges now in various places. Like, you know, there's a gold company, Kinross, and one minute they own one of the best mines in the world in Russia, and the next minute they don't. So, you know, the, the idea with being a supplier of choice in a multi-asset company to be supplying the utilities because it's a contractual business at the end of the day to a large degree, or it has been historically the uranium supply business, the, the, the uranium mines or what have you. And that was kind of the basic basic premise. And uh, obviously, we had a great run through that period, 2003 to 2008. And then we had, you know, first the GFC, which, you know, everybody thought the world would end because of Lehman Brothers, and no one ever thought there'd be any capital left, and certainly not $5 billion to build a nuclear power plant. And then the Chinese kind of saved the day, and the uranium went almost back to, not to the highs, but it went back to $70, and then the game was kind of back on again and everything else, and powering ahead. And then you had that Fukushima accident, which really changed the psychology around around nuclear. And then we went another 10 years. So the the undersupply and the, and the, and the looming mismatch really got dragged out because of that. And then now we have, we're here again, and we're probably more vulnerable now on security supply than we were 10 years ago. But basically, that was the, the, the premise. I mean, for most of that period of time, in post Fukushima, we didn't have a market where the price was um, sufficiently high that any developer could develop any new source of production. I think that's fair to say pretty much across the board. Um, there were a couple of big new things to um, found, like uh, on the west side of the Athabasca that are part of the future supply, obviously. But even with those additions, you know, we're still pretty, like macro-wise, the market's pretty short relative to the demand that's out there, which is a market going from, you know, 180 million pounds a year of, of demand, if it all came from new mines, to, to a number like 220 relatively quickly. And so we're still sitting in what we think is a pretty good position. You know, we've got great assets technically. Uh, we Our two core assets, one in the U.S., which is an ISR thing with about a 3 million pound ultimate capacity in New Mexico called Church Rock. And then we have a traditional, uh, conventional open pit type mine in Australia that can be 5 million pounds a year. They're, they have different sort of capex profiles and everything else. But both of those assets are very late stage development assets where effectively we don't really need to know anything more technically. We really just need to add permits and money and build them and bring them into the supply mix. And part of the hiccup has been, or it has been historically, and it's probably the only impediment now is really the political will to do that in these various countries, being i.e. the U.S. and uh, Australia. And obviously in the U.S. in the prior administration, you saw an emphasis to start saying, hey, what about strategic materials, minerals? What about uh, uranium? They ultimately came out with this uranium reserve, which was the one thing that came out of the previous administration that you can point to concretely. And they actually appropriated the funds for it. And then the new administration came in and is kind of pussyfooting around on implementing it, believe it or not. Whether that gets a big second win now remains to be seen and certainly would be a good sign. The Iranian producers of America, which were part of that sort of lobbying organization out of Washington, is being vocal about it and writing letters to the administration and what have you. But all they have to do is basically say, okay, here's the plan. We're going to start doing it. And having an actual, you know, like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we'll have a strategic uranium reserve. They haven't even done that sort of thing, which tells you that they acknowledge the, the magnitude of what they're looking at in terms of a problem. And in the Australian situation, you still have sort of very leftish 
historically anti-nuke type stuff in a couple of the political parties. And that's kind of what we're facing in Queensland. That's obviously subject to changing, frankly, on a moment's notice, because the, the, the market, because of climate change and everything else, was coming our way anyway in terms of acceptance of nuclear as a, as a critical thing to make it to the energy transition. I don't think that's going to change. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. We're one of the few companies that, you know, with a little bit of political um, tailwind instead of headwind, we'd suddenly have a couple of projects that would, would be re-rated dramatically in my estimation just because they're trading at a big discount just because you can't put a date on when they're going to be able to be developed. Mark, appreciate the overview there and good points on a few things. I do think that some of these restart projects and uh, shorter-term development projects places like the U.S. have a pretty unique position. While small quantity, the aggregate's a little bit better, but I do think that folks that have fresh permits, have low capex, can restart, et cetera. You know, certainly some of these U.S. peers, uh, also some stuff in uh, Africa and Australia, are in a very unique position to take early advantage. And I think Laramide is in that area, potentially with Church Rock and Crowd Point here as well. Maybe not the shortest, but nonetheless, in a pretty unique position, especially as supply concerns shift back to home, return to home a little bit more as we see some of these events take place. How about the capital structure here? Maybe just update the audience on shares outstanding, mark, cash on hand, the debt, and also major shareholders. Let me do that a second. Let me just add one thing to your previous comment, just because, or I forget, to mention that we do have this one other project that we really don't talk about much in the U.S. Well, we have two projects. They're both capable of supplying um, material through the, really through the EFR mill, probably in the short run. But the one that's the most near term is a project called LaSalle in Utah. That's part of that whole Colorado Plateau geological structure that produced a bunch of uranium back in the, you know, the 50s and through the 70s. It, it really needs to run through the EFR mill. So to the extent, and I know you have Mark on as a guest and what have you, and I know, I know him very well, obviously. Uh, he, he, at $50, I think you hopefully soon we'll see some clarity around what he plans to do about actually restarting the landing mill. And obviously, to the extent that you can rely on some of these other outside things to keep that mill at capacity, I think we'd potentially be part of that mix. So that's a, that's a source of production, and it's probably four to 500,000 pounds a year. It can come on relatively quickly and is, and is basically permitted. But I, And I think in aggregate, the U.S. near-term stuff, you're looking at maybe eight to 10 million pounds, probably, is it kind of that, if everybody that has permits and could make money at 50 bucks said, tomorrow, let's turn it on, you know, that's the kind of numbers. So where we are cap structure-wise now, we're at about 200 million shares. Stock trades, it was around 70, 75 cents the other day. So I guess 150 million Canadian market cap. Um, we're in all the ETFs that are out there. Um, there, as a result of previous financings that we had done through the tough times, we had an awful lot of warrants out. All those warrants became basically money good last year, and so we now have somewhere north of $10 million in the bank, so effectively enough money to fund everything we want to do this year, and then some. The biggest shareholders are probably myself at just under 10, and the insiders probably around 10. The ETFs probably collectively now are north of 10. The other funds that are all invested in uranium, I mean, basically you have a you have a menu of 25 names. So I think all of those dedicated funds typically have some laramide in it as well. And then, you know, your family offices and this, that, and the other thing. We, we probably have less ownership maybe than some of the other groups. 
because we didn't do any recent financing, so we don't have a lot of the hot money, hedge fund type money that really was based, the basis of most of the funding that got done, frankly, in 2021. Uh, there is one hedge fund who's been there the whole time, Extract Capital. They're a big, significant shareholder still. They're probably between five and ten. But it's, okay. it's well spread out. I mean, it's a name. It's been around. It's well known. Uh, there's still a convertible bet that expires a little over a year from now with a 40-cent Canadian convert price. So that's effectively a stock that's going to, I would guess, turn into equity. There's one Warren issue left that brings in five or six million dollars that more than covers the debt anyway. And actually, we could we could force it at this time because of where it trades, but we're not doing that. Yeah, we've been getting offered capital for 15 months, but it just didn't make sense because we didn't really particularly, unless, unless we had a real specific purpose of proceeds to, to use the capital, we decided not really to do that. Partly because you, you do pay a little bit of a price in the shareholder base because every single deal that's been done, which surprised me really, and there's another deal just got done this week, everybody's still giving away these half warrants and everything else. So the capital structures of most of these peer group companies, you know, they're not squeaky clean yet. You sort of want to get to that place where there isn't a lot of overhang in your capital structure. Let's come back to LaSalle. My understanding is you guys still need to get a, you have a bulk sample permit or is it fully permitted at this point? Or what do you think is the lead time that's subject to obviously getting a, a toll milling agreement or some type of a, a JV arrangement with uh, Mr. Chalmers? So we had a we had a toll milling arrangement with EFR that I think dates back to 2013 or 14. And I, I can't remember if there was some kind of price hope back in that whole long bear market that we thought, okay, we were really going to be able to get this going. And certainly that probably coincided with when we you know got the permits and what have you. We think the permit it is a bulk sample kind of permit, but it basically it's a natural just progression that it's an amendment and you just transition and you just keep producing from that from that point in time. And this was always going to be a thing that was going to be some kind of a campaign through the EFR mill, partly because in our particular that particular deposit you don't have any vanadium. So EFR has a vanadium circuit at at Blanding and they didn't, you know, they this was going to be a thing that was campaign because we didn't need to run the vanadium circuit. And so that was a mill I think and that they were always planning basically to take ore from three or four different places, including things that they own themselves. Some of those assets have now transitioned over to um, Bill Williams and Consolidated Uranium. But I mean, they'll all be obviously in coordination with whenever, whatever um, EFR decides to basically, let's go, we're gonna make some uranium now. They had done, which I thought was quite interesting and smart, and obviously, again, on the whole security of supply um, issue, because, you know, Mark, Mark Chalmers really led that whole effort on 232. Like he's very much about, he's been pounding the table in Washington for a long time about it. And so he made this little pivot over to rare earth. And I think it's more a question of how he decides to set up what he's going to do with that plant and when he's going to run, you know, potentially rare earth materials through there and when he can potentially run uranium. I think below $50, I don't think he had a lot of enthusiasm in there. You know, the economics aren't particularly attractive. I think it was always a thing going through that whole, you know, the 232 process, which which morphed into, uh, the, I think Trump set up a committee or something, and they looked at the uranium thing top to bottom. But at the end of the day, I think that the, I think the message being told to Washington was what, and the utilities was like, we need $65, $70 for American, for American supply, just because, you know, the U.S. stuff is not on the lowest part of the cost curve. It's probably, you know, towards the higher part of the cost curve, if you look at all these development assets around the world. I was going to ask, 
with what's happening where the price is right now, and obviously there's going to be more incentive here as we start to touch that 60 area, more and more and more conventional is going to start to look good as we get into 60, 70. But with regards to Crown Point Church Rock, with what you're seeing in the market, the events that are unfolding, do you guys lean back towards this as saying, you know, this is actually something that should be pretty well focused on because just because of the circumstances with the project status, plus this return to uh, certainly some of these more secure sources of supply. What's your thoughts on the focus shift uh, to this project specifically? Oh, we're, we're definitely getting more focused on that project. We're absolutely, I mean, last year, the whole more uranium market was a bit slow in developing, and then it took a long time to sort of get to 40, and then and then we pulled back a little bit. like Because it was such a hot market driven by hot money, I think by the time you got to the fourth quarter, I think the whole uranium sector sagged a little bit just because the hot money started to, to get a little nervous about things and just pulled away from that or went to other places. And I think you saw the whole the whole uranium sector correct from, you know, I would say 30, 40% from the highs. All the stocks did across the board. Like this is a group of, this is a group of stocks as a sector that it blows my mind how correlated it is. You know, we, we shouldn't be correlated with Cameco on a stock chart, but you know, it's remarkable how much it is. And so everybody kind of moves, you know, in tandem. And I think now we're in a new world where we're clearly going to a place where the price is going to be enough to start to bring development assets into play. And that'll be an interesting phase of this development because there, you know, there's a number of them there in different countries, but some of those assets obviously have natural owners or off takers. You know, the stuff in, in Niger, for example, obviously, you know, it's hard to see an American utility counting on that as their security of supply. No, it's tough. It continues to be tough. It's not the most preferred jurisdiction. Um, certainly, as people look back here, all of a sudden, Australia starts to look okay. And there's, you know, non-core stuff that becomes core in Australia. Canada's got substantial lead times unless you're chemical and you already have stuff that you can move ahead. So then you have to revert back to the U.S. and you revert back to places like Namibia referring to Western jurisdictions or at least jurisdictions that aren't tied to the other side there. So on Church Rock Crown Point, maybe get a little more detail here, Mark, in terms of permitting status and then walk us through the next steps you see to move this ahead towards finance and construction. Well, we, we need, we've got the NRC permit, which is in timely renewal, the federal permit, and that was transferred to us. And that was a process that took six months or something start to finish. Um, so the federal stuff is in is in good shape. We need one one New Mexico state permit, which is effectively the the part of the restoration process, the disposal well process, and and being able to demonstrate we can restore the well field back to an acceptable standard. And so we need to do some work with that, drill some holes. So we're this is we're planning to do that. That's in planning right now. We're going to definitely that'll be a 2022 event for sure. Um, we've got some hires we're making to sort of lead that effort now because it, you know obviously we the from a personnel standpoint, we were kind of on a de facto care and maintenance survival mode kind of thing for a long time, just kind of make sure we held on to these kind of potentially world-class type assets, right? So we were really chipping away at the at the holding costs and all that kind of thing. So in both jurisdictions, we're beefing back up personnel. So, but, but Church Rock, that's the plan is go in there, drill the holes, get the permit organized, get that submitted to the New Mexico um, authorities. And then in due course, hopefully that'll be permitted. And then it's a question of, you know, I, the price doesn't need to be any higher. At $50, you'd build that. Frankly, I frankly don't need contracts. It's a million pounds a year. The market is sufficiently robust. You can sell a million pounds a year if you want. 
Um, it's a much different thing than in Westmoreland, which, you know, comes on at 5 million pounds a year. You know, things that come on at 3, 4, 5 million pounds and need lots of CapEx, realistically, most companies are going to underpin that with contracts. I mean, even Cameco, you know, and they were stating all along, like MacArthur, they feel a lot better about turning it back on with a big contract book. Because the sure. contracts, what happens in, a, in, a, in this kind of market is obviously the contractors now start to, sh- the nature of the contract starts to shift in favor of the producer in a yes. bull market. And yeah. so you capture a lot of that upside anyway. And so that, yeah. that really would be, the, would be the thrust there. And then we're also very close to uh, finalizing the planning for a big program over in Australia on both Murphy and Westmoreland. Okay, good to uh, to see what the plan is here with this. And as the the term contracting waterfall starts to come into mid-tiers and, uh, you know, junior hopefuls, is where this is going as, you know, Cameco can only take so much before they're full with what they have. So moving on to the Australian assets here, Mark, you mentioned that. Um, how do you see that they fit into the Laramide narrative at this point? And does it make any sense at this point, given your guys' potential focus initially in the U.S.? Does it make sense to divest of any assets or do you see that this is a pipeline? What's your thoughts on how this goes? No, we get that question all the time, Andrew, and we have obviously got opportunistic people who've been trying to separate us from our, our assets, but you know, their version of, of what the separation price might be in a bear market is quite a bit different, or even a bull market, obviously, quite a bit different than ours. I mean, you're talking about a thing that has um, had two PEAs on it, the most recent PEA. I mean, there's a nav on it, and you know, it's $50 or... $65, I think, was the price we used the last time. I mean, you're talking in the hundreds of $400 million or some number like that. We're talking about a thing that's 5 million pounds a year in the lowest part of the cost curve. So that asset, as I said, if suddenly tomorrow Queensland said, you know what, we're, we've been wrong about nuclear power. We're just going to bring us your permits. We're obviously the first company that's going to be the beneficiary, I mean, beneficiary of that. And then an awful lot of value would get added to to our market cap in a, in a hurry. And we've just been making the asset, you know, keeping it together, making it better. We're about to go in there and do some more drilling. We've got some other targets. As I said, it just needs permits and money and build it. We don't really, it doesn't need to get any bigger. It doesn't need to technically get any better. We don't need to frankly know anything more about it, like the metallurgy or how we would build it or anything. It's just, it's, it's a quirk of circumstances because when they got rid of the whole anti-nuclear thing, the so-called three minds policy thing in Australia, if you remember that, they did that at a federal level. And so both parties in Australia are favorable towards producing nuclear and exporting it, but they left it to the states and there's it's a quirk of local politics that they were still ap- appealing to the Green Party. So it's similar to what you would have, like imagine the Green Party in Germany dynamic, only, only more, way more diluted. And that's the only residual opposition to us taking this thing and ultimately building it. That and, of course, the current party in power is not the permanent government of Queensland either. And at some point, they'll be voted out probably at the next election because they've kind of had their 10 years now almost. So we see a pathway because in 2012 to 2015, we had the right government in order to allow us to get this built. In fact, they went through a big exercise to tell everybody how they were going to build nuclear mines safely and all this kind of thing. And then they didn't get reelected. But what we didn't have is we didn't have the we didn't have the um, the price. So you know we need two green lights, price and politics, and we just had one. We've never had two green lights. So eventually we'll have two green lights, and the project's worth an awful lot of money. 
Australia, it's an easy jurisdiction. What I'm kind of waiting for, and you sort of see this dynamic developing, and it was developing before these events in Europe, was people were coming around to the idea that we're going to have to include nuclear. I mean, you saw with the whole inclusion in the EU taxonomy about green energy and all this kind of thing. It was coming around, and you could see the last opposition to any of this stuff melting away ultimately, and the last sort of anti-nuclear activists and what have you, would they'd probably either age out or they'd just kind of move on. So we were kind of moving in that direction anyway, and we sort of have to see how that happens. I mean, Australia is a huge coal exporter, right? So they, on the one hand, Queensland especially, so they're, they're sort of sucking and blowing. It's a totally um, untenable position to be a huge coal exporter, but be against nuclear. It makes no sense from the from trying to walk the line on net zero. So that I mean, at some point that was going to become, I think, a problem for that party, and they were probably just going to quietly say, you know what, we've moved on, and that whether they do or not, still I don't know, but I I still think that's a possibility. The other thing that is worth noting that happened in 2021 is the Americans came in and gave the Australians nuclear submarines, and or at least they promised to give them nuclear submarines. And that caused an enormous kerfuffle in the Aussie media and everything else, and they ran through the whole nuclear issue again. And I would say it's 60-40 now with Australians going, why don't we have nuclear power, and why do we have these restrictions? And I'm just wondering when the, Ameri- when the Americans call up and sort of ask for the quid pro quo, because I don't think they're getting nuclear submarines without being a supplier of choice on all sorts of commodities, including particularly rare earths. Like, I do think as much as they haven't really focused on the energy side of things, because they're, we're going in this direction around electrification and EVs and all this stuff, I think they realized how vulnerable, the West really realized how vulnerable they were on the EV supply, on the uh, rare earth supply chain. So I think there's been a, a very coordinated thing going on behind the scenes to try and figure out how the West is going to have its own rare earth supply chain. And I think Australia is a key part of that mix. Certainly interesting, some of the policies and how long the silliness continues on a lot of this stuff. Look, if I was going to buy Westmoreland today from you, Mark, you would charge me NPV, that's stated? Well, we wouldn't sell it. Higher, okay. So, the, and here's the, other, here's, here's the other thing to look at, though. So, and this comes up, too, because I'm sure this is coming up in your, in your roster of questions that you want to ask. You know, well, let's talk about M&A. So, well, what we have that very few companies have, if you look down the peer group, and I'm talking about let's, let's take one of these ETFs as, as representative of the peer group for you know, URA or one of these names or, or Mike Alkins fund in terms of the future developers, most of the companies are single asset companies. Yep. Single, single. And yep. so what we have, what, what we have, if we could wanted to do a deal with someone is we're, we're an instant portfolio for somebody an instant pipeline of things that obviously are very high quality. They're uncertain on the timeline and everything else. But if you start to look at the timelines of realistic timelines of all of the developers that are sitting there and you go through them one by one and say who could you know if they had the government basically helping them at every step and funding them and handing them permits as quick as possible and they could find the workers and how fast does any of this stuff come online it's a bit sobering i mean the earliest stuff for the isr folks is two years or something and you start looking at the west side of the base and you're talking 2029 or 2030 so in that realistic timeline of when any new supply could come on online, you know, a couple of little things happen with, with political things with Laramide, and both of our projects are on well ahead of that. I mean, because yeah. we don't 
we don't need to sink two shafts and we don't need to yeah I want we don't to need a billion that. dollars our projects fit into this matrix of someone if you were trying to create kind of an instant company it would be, these would be things that would be certainly in the nice to have basket and the sort of majors if you will they've kind of been tippy-toeing out of nuclear the you know the rios and the the BH, I mean BHP has obviously made a big play now to get into potash which is probably looking pretty smart you know because they're they've been building this big thing in Saskatchewan for a long time and they're now like they're going full tilt with it but in terms of who could get involved in uranium the problem with the big Canadian stuff that people look at as the probably the best developer quality um, stuff only a, only a Canadian can own it I mean a foreigner can only own 49 percent of it and obviously the Chinese now who were were in both those names directly or indirectly you know trying to have a supply relationship or more you know that's that's a challenging scenario now compared to what it was five years ago so there's been a few names bandied around but if you were going to build a big company you probably want to get some things that are either near production or and then you're going to want some scale if you want to be in the uranium business i think as the price moves here again this is, this is all speculative on where we're going in terms of totals but Certainly, the the majors and, and folks will come back. There's no doubt when when the time comes, some of that interest will return. You know, we're at fifty dollar uranium. Late stage valuations are probably a little silly at this point, but we're not in a full blown bull market either in terms of late stage and where you get the valuations. And then you have things like pipeline. We don't know when Queensland opens up, and we don't know when places like Virginia, U.S. open up. That's comes with a discount especially if it's a 10, 15 year venture, maybe maybe more, hard to say. So, you know, there's always those considerations and it's just always good to get a gauge on what you see as value at this point in the market, obviously with what we see coming in the future. Um, and we know where this market's headed, but at the same time, Mark, we're not at Euromin slash energy metal slash uranium one pricing that you've seen in the last cycle, as you well know. But uh, yeah, it's always good to get a gauge for what people think things are worth at this point in the market and the circumstances related to jurisdiction, et cetera, because you know, South Australia would be my first pick in Australia for a jurisdiction, Northern Territory, West Australia would probably be third for me, um, and then Queensland. Yeah, I mean, to mention those names that you mentioned before, I think one thing that's happened with this cycle is because we had, you know, because in the last cycle we had Google, you know, which in previous cycles you didn't, you know, we you could have six or 700 projects because when the site last cycle started, it, it was like a eureka moment for investors in uranium and it was a brand new thing and it was none of these projects that have been around 20 or 30 or 40 years ago were known to anybody. And they all got basically put into public companies. And I think a lot of them are kind of known now and have either fallen away or they're all inside these 25 survivors or what have you. So I think people understand now and it's very easy to do your own research. And, you know, the whole investing market's changed. In fact, we're talking on a, a podcast and it can go in the whole world. And people's the way they get information is very much different even than it was 10 or 15 years ago when we had that last cycle. So I just think. The, the the deposits that we know about are kind of the ones that we got to go with now. Frankly, it's not nearly enough. We need to go out. No one's exploring. So I agree with you that, that we're early because we're not even really into like we're not even into a uranium exploration market yet. We're still in a uranium stock market that is largely, you know, it kind of more from deep contrarians to the hedges came in. And we don't really have much of the sticky long only type money yet. And I would say that's really across the board in energy. Like it blows my mind that 
in energy, we have a we have a raging energy crisis, and you still don't. And most people are still shunning owning energy assets. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a long way to run. Yes. Well, let's uh, move on here and, and get wrapped up. I want to talk just broad strategy here, Mark. I, you know, you've been at Laramide collecting paychecks, I think, boy, since the late 90s. It's been a long road, as you know. We've had a, quite a bumpy one here and, and lots of events. But, uh, you know, talk about your strategy here as we move forward. Do you see that this become a production strategy with a pipeline, a sustaining company that's going to go into the 30s in terms of decade? Do you see that this company gets sold during this cycle? What's kind of the, the Mark Henderson view? Because you've had a long one. Yes, and part of that wasn't deliberate. Like, I didn't, if I'd known there was a 10 year bear market facing us in the 2011 to 2021, I may have made some different decisions. I mean, fortunately, I wasn't the only thing I was doing. So, you know, we had a few other balls in the air and I've been involved in gold companies and other things, you know, some successful, some less successful. Uh, in terms of outcomes, but uh, the idea when we started, again, as I said, when we put this company together, we and we, you know, we ha we were fortunate enough to get really high quality development assets that were on the right part of the cost curve, and really, really, the challenge was going going out and getting the permits and 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 building them. What we realized very quickly was that the whole M&A strategy where you sell out that's very common in, in precious metals and which, you know, I've been involved in a few times before where we, we sold companies and we're just a logical part of the, the sort of the food chain, the ecosystem that exists, right, um, to create bigger companies. That's You sort of don't have that dynamic in uranium. That's part of the problem. That's kind of what I was alluding to earlier with, you know, maybe there's some, some mid-tier like the techs or people like that that might want to get into uranium, but you start to look around and like, uh, who's a buyer? Well, uh, there's Cameco. And who else you got? Well, there's Cameco. You know, Kaz Adamprom certainly isn't buying anybody. They never were because they're kind of restricted anyway, but it's pretty clear that, that they're not going to be the roll-up company to become a much bigger producer. So you are kind of forced with the decision that the realistic thing is you are going to have to go build it and create value that way. Or, as I said earlier, I think you're going to be part of, uh, you have a very nice suite of assets that becomes part of of, of a very nice, big, successful company that is producing, that has multiple sources of production that can ultimately produce to say, you know, 10 million pounds a year, say, would be a good level. I think there's there's certainly room, and the market is the market really wants that. The market really wants to see, you know, Cameco was at 20 plus when their runs were operating at full tilt. I think there's a lot of room in the market for a very successful company that was producing eight to 12 million pounds a year from multiple assets. And I think that's kind of a, probably a logical outcome for our asset base, whether we put it together and are the acquirer or whether we're the, uh, the acquiree. Very well. well. Mark, I appreciate that. It's always good to talk strategy and how that exit's going to go. For potential investors who are on the sidelines listening, market cap of Laramide stands at about $156 million Canadian here. What would you say to them about considering the company at this stage and current levels? Well, I mean, the CEOs always think their companies are undervalued. But if you look at the the metrics that were typically used where, you know, you can compare it across assets, this whole resource pound in the ground kind of thing, which is kind of an out, outdated concept. But I do think we're trading at a low level, partly because I think we have, you know, we've got 50 million pounds in two big chunky assets that are effectively ready to be built. And then some other assets, you're well over 100 million pounds, you're probably 120 million pounds, you've got upside 
obviously Westmoreland for that to get bigger. We haven't even talked about Murphy, which is, a, I think, a fantastic greenfield thing in, in the, the Northern Territory. That's, that's basically the entire geological belt that Westmoreland sits in. And so, yeah, no, I do think there's room. I mean, we're at $50. The old rule of thumb was 10% of in-ground value in a, in a, in a in, you know, I don't talk that frothy kind of market top of the market thing, but certainly between, what are we, a dollar fifty, a dollar something or less now, you know, is there room to get to four or five dollars? I think pretty easily. The, the company traded at $700 million in 07, basically on Westmoreland alone. So yeah, there's room. What's the best way for investors to reach out to the company, Mark? Oh, just email me at mark at laramide.com, and I'd be happy to converse with them. Excellent. Well, Mark, I appreciate it. Thanks for the update. Uh, good to chat and talk Laramide and plans. Keep in touch, and best of luck on progress. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. Appreciate the opportunity for the chat.